Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to the show, friend. I'm delighted to be here, Gracie. It's good seeing you. Ah, it's a it's a great pleasure to have you on. And I've had the 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 wonderful opportunity to read your book, True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. And it's it's a book that that consists of of a group of um, a whole long group of interviews that you did between 2020 and 2022 all across the country with all sorts of different people who are involved in the life of the church from church men from bishops all the way to to pe- even to people who are not church members who aren't even catholic but who have something to say that's important about the catholic church but i want to know your opinion but let me let me tell you what i'm thinking when i when i when i read the book is that you feel that the church is as always at a crossroads i feel like the church is always at a crossroads it doesn't matter what age we are in we're in a crossroads cuz that's the cross is where we live right <laughs> in the church yeah. but that that it's very important to understand the scenario that we're in, the the elements, the the landscape, so that we can now um, understand and then move forward in a way that's best right. calculated yeah. to save souls and and renew our our church, which should be renewed every day. So mm-hmm. is, does that does that ring true? It does. You know, when I when I finished the when I wrote up the proposal. Gracie, I'm toward the end of my career now. Obviously, I'm in my 70s, you know, and I've been doing this for 45 years. So the idea was, well, I'm going to write this grand strategy analysis of the church and my experience. But, you know, I get bored with myself and I get bored (laughs) with my opinions and I get bored with the opinions of the whole Catholic kind of commentariat. And that led me to begin thinking about interviewing ordinary people. uh, And and what they actually think. I mean, everybody has an opinion, but but sometimes the invisible folks in the church have the most interesting perspectives on how the church is actually functioning, you know. So I started with uh, obvious leadership, which were the bishops. I I think I got 30 bishops in 25 states and one foreign country. And then that was a thread that I just began pulling out. You know, the next thing was, well, okay, how about the clergy? How about religious? How about lay people? Because it's primarily lay people that I interviewed. So in the end, I mean, it's... uh, each of the interviews was seven to 10,000 words, which meant that they had to be edited and condensed and get approved by the people who were named in the interviews. And uh, that's the reason it took as long as it did to get it done. But uh, I think in the end, people will have a pretty good sense of the reality of the church in the United States at a time when uh, she's apparently misunderstood in Rome uh, in ways that uh, are not very productive for anyone. So I'm happy with the people that I talk to because I think they're representative of um, faithful Catholics in the United States. They were certainly not quiet about criticizing things that they felt were wrong in the church, but they're deeply faithful people. You know, I mean, they're, they're people who actually practice their faith, believe what the church teaches, and want the church to succeed in her mission. So It's a, it's a little uh, bit of, a, of, of the opposite. It's a, it is the opposite of, that, of, of the, the survey that went out with the synod on synodality that went out to every Catholic <laughs> who says they're Catholic, but even yeah. if, you know they come to church maybe on Easter if, if, if it yeah. doesn't interfere with their brunch plans, <laughs> which yeah. I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. That was, that was cruel well, of no, me. But I, I, didn't, I didn't have any interest in, re- I mean, I, I deliberately avoided people both on what could be called the left and the right extreme of the church, I've just I wasn't interested in hearing complainers, chronic complainers, or the tepid, or the people who are just chronically unhappy with the church. I mean, they they already get all of the attention. I wanted to hear the concerns of people who actually practice it at, at considerable personal sacrifice. You know, I mean, the of course the bishops are extremely interesting because I gave them anonymity, and when you do that, they actually say what they think, not what they. <laughs> think they need to say. You know, well, I shouldn't say, but I immediately recognized our archbishop. But that's, you know, <laughs> when you know when you know your archdiocese, then you, you, you of course you're going to recognize your archbishop. Well, hopefully you're one of the very few who do. But, <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, when, pe- when bishops speak publicly, they, speak, they have to speak prudently because their words are so easily misrepresented. 
And, and, uh, and they will be misrepresented on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you give them anonymity, they actually relax if they trust you and uh, tell you what they think. And they did. <clears throat> and, and I think uh, what emerges is a pattern, a, a portrait of men who are very devoted to the church and um, are human beings, you know, have their own um, uh, reservations and, and frustrations and worries and hearing those things and also hopes and hearing those things authentically is very powerful. Another chapter that I just loved, the one that I read, uh, I've read it a hundred times and every time I read it, I get very emotional about it is the special people. Oh yes, me too. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with people who are making serious sacrifices in, in dealing with disabled or orphaned kids that they adopt, I mean, they, their, their stories are just tremendously powerful, I think. And, and you know, it, and, and, and the, the way other, that they, and that the way, and that is a beautiful chapter. And I, I know some of the people that, that are in that chapter and the way that their that their relationship to the church, their relationship to God through the church is is such a it, it's an inspiration to them to make these acts of of, of generosity um, and then also sustains them. And, and, and not in a way that's that's uh, silly or um, magical thinking, no, like, like in a very in a way that's very uh, true, like very, um, very faithful to what's actually happening in their lives, which is very difficult on many levels. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is the number of people that I interviewed who started out not pious at all and not even really uh, believing very deeply, but tried to use the church to accomplish something else and then ended up falling in love with her and becoming committed. You're you know? talking I mean, about my husband. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Chris Pereira, who who runs the Tepeyac uh, yes. Leadership Initiative. Yes. He, I mean, the guy was just extremely frank in his comments. And yet here's a man who has done an enormous amount of good, who fell in love with the church. He started out thinking that he was going to use her to get what he needed in terms of raising his kids. And then he ended up becoming completely passionate about his about his mission. And uh, I, I just think that it's, it's proof that the church is alive in a way that uh, sometimes we forget because we're so focused on the conflict and confusion in the church that we neglect to observe and remember that it's been like this basically all the time. You know, mm -hmm. it's been like this a hundred times before and, and much worse. And we need to own the hope and then turn that into action in a way that um, renews the church for the next generation. When That's people say to me that they're, they're so um, distressed by the things that we see around us uh, and mm -hmm. the way that the church disappoints us, <laughs> Because yeah. the church disappoints us. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes say to them, you know, this is the way God planned it. If, if he had made the life in the church a pleasant experience, then we wouldn't be turning to him and we wouldn't be yeah. calling out to him and, and struggling. And I mean, it's in the struggle that we find heaven. It's not in the, in the comfortable planes of our lives, right? It's in the uphill climb that we find yeah. heaven. Heaven's at the top of an uphill climb. And if, and if we're not climbing you know, and, and sweating and, and struggling and we're not dusty, then how are we going to find heaven? You know, one of the one of the things that Archbishop Shapu used to enjoy telling people was, uh, you know, if you think it's bad now, uh, imagine what it was like during the period in the church when uh, you had the Arian controversy or where when the mm -hmm. bishops and uh, church leaders were, were meeting to draft and, and perfect the creeds, you know, I mean, the bishops would have fist fights, you know, <laughs> and that's a, that's a true story because I mean, what was enormous things were at, at, at stake and the idea of uh, kind of a conflictless church is a, is imaginary. It's mm -hmm. sentimental and it's not real. I mean, we were living a couple of years ago, Gracie, and it was about a decade ago, actually. I remember saying to some friends that we were living through a second reformation. And I remember being almost laughed out of the room because it just seemed to be so, our time seemed so completely remote from the 16th century. And of course it is, but I didn't mean it that way. I meant reformation, restructuring. Mm. We're going through a period when we're reimagining, restructuring the way that we think about institutions, about our own uh, our own humanity, about the nature of of uh, our sexuality. All those things are up in the air and being fought about right now. And so I meant reformation in that sense. Mm -hmm. And we're right in the middle of it, you know. And we've been through these things before. They're very difficult, and you have to really cultivate a sense of hope and fidelity during that period. And isn't it natural that we as the church as an institution is caught on her back foot 
I mean, it's natural, right? I mean, technology yeah. grows by leaps and bounds uh, in, in a way that we can't keep up with. The, the sexual revolution, the result of the pill, I think, or also ideas from the Enlightenment, and that also is so hard to grapple with. Um, God, it's like God is sending wrenches. No, he's throwing wrenches in the works so that, yeah. so that we stop and reassess and we reform. We form ourselves anew in response to new, new landscape that we're living in. We have to adjust and adapt. Yeah, I I think people need to also own the fact that we've had a very long period of uh, tranquility in this country. Mm. You know, stability and a tranquility that misleads people into thinking that this is the way that it always was or it always should be. That doesn't work that way. You know, Mm. we're dealing dealing with real evil in the world um, uh, that penetrates the church as well sometimes. And that has to be weighed against the fact that, uh, I mean, if you look at the church, one of the bishops that I interviewed makes this point that if you think it's bad now, take a look at the 11th and the 10th century, where you had, I mean, ac- actively wicked popes. What was, you know? Wasn't there a pope at that time that was exhumed and then put on trial? His bones were put on trial? I can I'm not un- sure it was in that century, but there's one of them out there that did that. I mean, there's there's one that I mean, imagine the, the kind of resentment that you're holding for someone to do that to him. <laughs> and that's not been part of our, uh, it's certainly not been part of my lifetime at all. I mean, I, we've had a string of really tremendous popes and uh, it, it, uh, it's something to be grateful for, you know. The other thing too that I wanted to stress in this is the, uh, I think we have a Roman audience that misinterprets the American church in a significant this, this way. This came out over and over again in, in, yeah. in many of the interviews. And, yeah. and, and I was happy to read about that in a way that, that explained to me some of the things that I've that I've found difficult to process. I, and I want to separate this from Pope Francis because the people who have been nastiest to the American Church are people around him, not him personally. The the uh, and that's something that I want to stress in this interview is that none of the bishops expressed any disloyalty to the Holy See or oh Pope no Francis. nothing yeah quite quite the quite the opposite. I mean they're they're puzzled they're frustrated. One or two were irritated, you know, <laughs> by by the treatment the American Catholic environment is getting from Rome. But nobody was disloyal. They were all very faithful, very, very. And that's just natural. I mean, Americans are very faithful to the Pope. They love the Pope. And they love the Pope because we were a mission church for a very long time. And we relied on Roman support in order to survive in a frequently hostile Catholic, uh, Protestant country. But I think the I think it's it's important to understand that uh, the church is much stronger in this country than in a lot of other places in the world. And it's puzzling and frustrating that Rome doesn't see that. There was a piece by uh, Antonio uh, Spadaro and Marcello um, Figueroa, I think was his last name, Presbyterian minister uh, out of Latin America, who uh, published a story back in 2017 in La, Ch- La Civilta Cattolica. It was just a, a crazy story. I mean, it was completely ignorant of of the reality of the of American Catholic life and very deeply critical and uh, to the degree that that in in infects Roman thinking about it, the American Catholic Church it's 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 very unhealthy you know and uh, causes a certain degree of confusion and bafflement on the part of church leaders in this country. One of your chapters was very interesting to me is um, on on the new Americans through immigrant eyes. Yeah, and yeah. I. I'm not only an immigrant, but I live in a community which is 100% immigrant, except for maybe my husband. I think there's like three Anglos in the whole, in our whole island. And we have a ragingly beautiful parish. We've just built an $18 million church. I mean, it's, and it's gorgeous and it's packed and, and everyone there is from somewhere else. And they're all from Latin America, different countries. And, and it's so baffling when I, when I read what I read in your, in, in the book that, you know, Catholicism of immigrants, Latin American immigrants drops dramatically from generation to generation. Yeah. Where are we losing? Why are we losing our, I mean, I read your chapter, but I, I don't think I was, I don't think I came up with any real ideas of why, why that happens. I guess the American yeah. culture is too strong for us. Yeah, I think you, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that that goes to one of the issues that I, I, I've been personally preaching for a while, which is that, uh, you know, we need to have an appropriate patriotism in the sense of our loyal, I mean, patriotism is an extension of the fourth commandment. You know, oh, we, yes, have an absolutely. we have an obligation to love the best ideals of our country, but that doesn't mean it's not, you know, it doesn't translate into a kind of an idolatry. I mean, the United States has a lot of 
good people in it and a lot of its ideals are wonderful, but it's reality right now. It's the greatest materialist culture on the planet in, in human history. And I think I think Shapu says that in his long form interview at the end of the book. We're a materialist machine. We're a deeply pragmatic people, which gives, uh, gives us a, a, a tremendous freedom in technological development, but it also produces a materialism that's just as powerful as it was in the Soviet Union you know, just of a different nature. Uh, and we have to be less, we have to be less naive about our citizenship. You know, I mean, we, we should love our country, but that doesn't mean that we should go along with so many of the policies that are taking up a lot of our public space right now. You know, I, I've said this in a number of other occasions when, when our, our oldest son uh, was accepted into West Point, my wife and I were deeply, deeply proud. I'm sure. I, I would never encourage that now. I wouldn't stand in the way of someone who wanted to serve the country in, a, in the military because the military is a credible profession. But I'm not sure I would want my child dying for uh, LGBT issues or, or uh, uh, permissive abortion. I don't, I don't have any obligation to defend that kind of a nation. You know, when my and, boys were young, we, my husband and I would say to them, you know, if there's a war, you'll go out to fight and you might die. And your father and I would be very proud. We, like we raised them to understand that that was their, as Americans, as uh, well as citizens of any country, it was their their duty. And I feel completely different about that now too, like yeah. you do. And I'm not, I haven't expressed it to them again, but I struggle with that idea because I I'm deeply patriotic and I don't I don't understand so many things about the United States and their imprint on the world and the the way that they they express this this complete wrongness about human anthropology and they enforce yeah. it on everyone that they meet and then of course the materialism and the lack of yeah I, it's uh it's hard to square that with a natural and good and holy patriotism yeah i mean you know that tr traditionally i'm sure you're aware of this i mean traditionally the, the catholics were significantly overrepresented in the marines uh in the cia in the fbi and uh and why why is that well it's because we had to prove that we were real americans you know, mm -hmm. that we really love the country, that we belonged here, that we were committed to defending it. And, you know, all those things are good, but what did it, what are exactly are you defending? I mean, it, it, the, we have an, I'm a, I'm a big fan of John Courtney Murray and Murray, uh, Murray was actually quite critical of the United States absent its biblical leaven. Um, mm. if you step back and look at John Courtney Murray, uh, He's frequently misrepresented as kind of an America booster, you know, and he was very positive about America if it stayed faithful to its biblical leavening. Uh, but is that what we have right now? I would argue no. And it makes it, we need to be much more skeptical and, and uh, much more careful and less naive in the way that we exercise our, our citizenship. Well, we have that, but we have that in our in our little circles, in our little groups, and that the way the way we organize in community, right? Um, yeah. So we're able to do that on the on the on the lower level, on the on the smaller level. But it's it's not the translating. First loyalty has to be to the church. Mm -hmm. uh, well, for our first loyalty has to be to God and to our obligation to confess Jesus Christ. But um, our our we have a deeper obligation. We're we're more cat. We're primarily Catholic Americans, not American Catholics. You know, uh, and or by the other way around, excuse me, we're, we're primarily Catholic and secondarily American is what I'm trying to communicate. The, 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 the national identity is less important than the religious identity. That's a, uh, that's a complicated statement, isn't it? Yeah, but I, it's, I mean, I've, I, that's certainly the way that I've lived most of my life. Mm -hmm. I, I have, I'm very skeptical of our politics. And I think everybody should be. If you look at the choices that we're facing this year, for example, they're not exactly positive ones. No. Uh, and and so where does that leave us? I mean, the we head, have to use the head of the human health 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 human health and services health and human services department is a man who wears a skirt. <laughs> yes. I, I fixate on that. that I fixate on that because I'm a physician and so much of my my life is is about health and human services. Um, and the man wears a skirt and yeah. And we're all supposed to co co cooperate with the lie. Well, I mean, yeah. and it, it, uh, if people get in the habit of doing that, then they forget what truth is. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 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 it's a pattern that was exercised in, 
you know, the Third Reich. It was a pattern that, uh, you know, infected the East Bloc and the Soviet Union. I mean, it's it's everybody's going to cooperate in the lie and then that becomes the truth. Well, no, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. And and maybe that's what the, Catholics are here for to to yeah. to to be th that part of of the country that still recognizes the truth. Yeah. And there's I mean, lots if we do that, if we're know, able to embrace that and, and be brave yeah. enough to carry that out. Well, the good news about the United States is that there's still tens and tens of millions of good people, which means that there's still a real leavening of goodness in the country and it's still remediable. It can be turned around, but not if we're all asleep at the switch, you know. And you see that all the time, right? You go out into the world, whether it's to to. I don't know, to Walmart to, <laughs> to shop or, or to get your oil changed. And there they are. There's America yeah. and they're lovely. They're wonderful people. Yeah. I just came back from the South. I was in Alabama for some interviews at EWTN. And uh, <laughs> I came back and I, you know, we live in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area. And uh, it's a pretty rough city. I mean, Phil the whole Philadelphia region is a pretty tough environment. Great environment once you're part of it and once you get used to it. But it's pretty direct. And in, in in Alabama, I mean, people were just amazingly nice. Yes. <laughs> <It was> just, <laughs> I, I had forgotten that they existed, you know? I mean, there was just... And I've seen the same in South Carolina. The South still has a lot of that courtesy, uh, human courtesy that... It's, a, it's lovely. ...kind of evaporated. Some in other places, you know. I was so. picked up by a driver to go to an EWTN interview and, and at the airport there. And I, 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 yeah, I jabbered at him all the way in the car because that's what I do. I'm Cuban. <laughs> so I talk and talk and talk. And everything I asked, I talked, I asked him about, he said, yes, ma'am, with the most, <laughs> with the loveliest in the loveliest tone, so polite. By the end of the drive, I said, I think I've driven you crazy. Oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, even the TSA people at the airport were nice. I couldn't believe it. You know, it just was, uh, it was a different experience. Well, but, there's America. That's America, that's right? America. Beautiful yeah. hearts, working hard to raise beautiful families and, and maybe sending their boys to die overseas yeah. and, and hoping that it's worth it and, and that we still, as a country, are are all holding on to some, that we're all looking at the same beautiful ideals that formed our country. Yeah. But, but let me like ask you about that. Let me ask you about yeah. that, Fran. The, 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 the reality of the Catholic Church has to do a lot with the reality of America. And, and you, you talk about this at the end in your afterword. No, I'm sorry, in chapter 11, the problem and, and, and its solutions. Um, yeah. tell, tell me about that, because that's very important. And, and I don't think we think about that very much as American Catholics. Let me ask you in what respect you're talking about. Give me a, a, a hint as to what section you're talking about. Oh, in that well, chapter. you talk about how America was formed as as an idea, a, a collection of ideals, and it was it was it was manufactured. It's not an organic place. Oh, that's right. It's not an organic thing. I mean, we and and that's why religion is so very important as a, as an adhesive to it. Uh, otherwise, it's just a you know a machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the 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 law is very important as a as a, uh, a structural support for the American experiment. But the law has to be, uh, the law doesn't exist in a vacuum. The law is a matter of what's right and what's wrong and the application of that to public life. And so if you lose the biblical underpinning to, to the law, uh, you, you, the whole thing begins to fall apart or turn into a machine that isn't really human. Uh, you know, I think people need to understand that, that the United States, uh, we don't have an ethnic or even a language unity in the country. Um, it's primarily English, but I mean, Spanish is very prominent in the United States because of the amount of immigration now. Um, we're not uh, one ethnicity. Uh, we don't have a long history. I mean, uh, we, we were invented in the 18th century. Before that, it didn't exist. Um, it's experimental, and the experiment can fail if certain things aren't um, kept alive. We're, we're Shappy once described us as a mixed marriage, you know, I mean, a mixed marriage of the biblical of the biblical and, and the uh, ideas of the enlightenment. And it's always been a tension there, you know, a good tension that's produced a fantastic country, but it requires both pillars for it to stand. And when we lose our faith mm. by being too materialistic, uh, the whole thing begins to unravel, and you see that now. I mean, we when you when you shift from a manufacturing economy to a consumption economy, 
uh, you have to keep consumption and desire going in order to make the whole thing work. But if you do that, what you're doing is making people look inward at their own desires and their needs and their appetites, cultivating those appetites. And pretty soon that's all they're interested in or they're interested in a, um, um, an unhealthy way. And I think that's what we've got. You know, I mean, we don't, we don't do enough thinking about the people that we are. In fact, we don't do enough thinking at all, except in purely uh, technical terms in order to improve delivering products, you know, and it just, it's, it's not a good place to be. Well, Fran Meyer, you have written the book exactly on this topic, looking at who we are as Catholics, as American Catholics or Catholic Americans, and how we can understand ourselves better so that we can continue being that other pillar no? in, American, in, in, American, in our American um, society so that um, this, um, this country becomes what it could be. So thank yeah, you. I, I would just leave you with, uh, with uh, the most important thing that I would have to say about the book is that I went into it uh, convicted about the goodness of the church and came out of it even more so. And uh, the book is finally about hope. It's not about criticism. I mean, there's plenty of that and some very sobering remarks from a variety of people. But ultimately, you're hearing from people who are deeply committed to the church and live it. Uh, in an authentic way. And that's a source of hope. It's not a source of uh, distress. Well, I finished the book this morning and I, and I closed the, the last page definitely with hope and, and, and recognizing, having recognized um, the people that I know as the church. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the political. I read about the political church and the culturally divisive church and the complicated church, but the <laughs> church that I know day in and day out is the church of your book. And it, and it does fill me with hope. So thank you so much, friend. My pleasure. Us. Thanks, Gracie. God bless you. Joining us next is an old friend of the show's. His name is Brad Wilcox, and he works with the National Marriage Project. He has a new book out called Get Married. I can't think of any better advice for young people these days. Brad is a professor of sociology and the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He has been for the past 15 years. For the book, he examined data from seven nationally representative surveys in extensive research and believes that the data reveals that living for ourselves or our jobs, our own happiness and success is not very likely to bring us to a destination filled with meaning and happiness, whether we are men or women. Welcome to the show, Brad. Good to be here, Gracie. So, Brad, as I mentioned a moment ago, your new book is called Get Married. It sounds like uh, like an, an instruction manual and something that maybe is uh, could not be more important right now. If The way I understand marriage um, as a, yeah. a, a bedrock institution and as also like a guide towards prosperity of all sorts, like flourishing, I should say, of all sorts. This is, this is, this is like a... Um, no, like a, a call to arms, get married. So tell us about that. Yeah, Gracie, there's no group of Americans today who are less lonely, more financially secure or happier than married men and women. But I think that the sort of tragic irony of our moment is that marriage has been getting a lot of bad press, a lot of bad social media. And so we're seeing that a lot of young adults, particularly younger women, think that marriage is a path to misery or not being very happy. There are too many sacrifices that you know are required by being a spouse and a parent. And so they think it's not a pathway to happiness. But the data point us in a very different direction. Mm -hmm. You're all about data, Brad, at your at your uh, National Marriage Project. And all, every, I think everything that you do is always very, um, is very backed up by by numbers, by data, by research, by surveys. And and I think that the, that you perform an invaluable service because sometimes we go out there and we say, oh, this is better. You know, marriage is great. It's, it's ordained by God or it's, uh, it's, it's the most stable thing. And, but people want to see numbers um, to, to back this up. Like people, we're all very data driven. How, how important is data to your work? Yeah, it's pretty important. So as a sociologist, you know, what I bring to the table is just kind of an ability to um, look at national surveys and to kind of convey the results of those surveys. Also, though, I did a lot of speaking to ordinary people across the U.S. for my new book, Get Married. Uh, more than 40, you know, 
people I spoke with about kind of their own marriages, their own relationships, talk to single young adults as well, to kind of give people kind of a more textured sense to how the data is playing out in ordinary lives across the United States. And I'm sure that your data has shown that people are not getting married or they're delaying marriage. Um, and maybe you can give us the numbers, uh, the the sheer numbers of uh, Americans, the percentage of Americans that are simply not married, I think is very high for historical standards. Yeah, we're looking at about one in two adults today who are not married, and we've never kind of been in this particular place. And in terms of kind of where we're headed, Gracie, is that I think about one in three young adults today, like in their early 20s, will never marry. And this is just kind of like, you know, we've never been in a place where there are going to be so many Americans who are not able or not desiring to get married. And I think from my vantage point, you know, looking at just the data on loneliness, the data on financial security, the data on happiness, that they're going to be in a rough spot, you know, in their 50s and even in a rougher spot, you know, in their 70s and 80s as it kind of, you know, head towards um, the last chapter of their lives, you know, absent a spouse and oftentimes absent any children. I think it's going to be a, a rough road for a lot of Americans, you know, in the future. Now, this is this is an enormous question, and we, pro we we could probably talk about this for days, but where is the disconnect? What's the disconnect between the actual reality of marriage and the way it helps people flourish and the perception of marriage uh, and, and, the, and the way that people are staying away from it? So I think there are a couple of disconnects here. I think one problem that we're facing is that these devices that we have, you know, these, um, oh. these, these phones... <laughs> Um, you know, they're, they're which we should away. all give up for Lent. <laughs> um, it just means less socializing, less dating, less volunteering, less church going. And these are, of course, places that we can meet people and, and begin to forge a relationship, a romantic relationship, and then that can lead to marriage. So that's part of the problem is there's too much time on screen, not enough time in the real world. I think another big problem is that women and men today are kind of in, inhabiting opposite planets oftentimes. I think a lot of women are skeptical about men, both in terms of seeing them maybe as predators or as guys who are not going to help out, you know, on the home front, or they're not going to kind of like be good, reliable breadwinners. So that's certainly, I think, one problem. And there are plenty of men who think of women as like these people who want to just sort of take advantage of them financially and otherwise. And, you know, marriage is not a good, a good bet, you know, from and we've heard this online right people like Andrew Tate articulating this this perspective. So that's part of the problem as well. And then we are seeing, to be frank, you know, a lot of young men are floundering. They're not doing well in high school. They're not going to college. They're not going to trade school. They're not really doing well in their jobs in their early 20s. And so they're really not very marriageable or dateable. And this is another part of the problem. So this is there are a lot of challenges. I would say the other final thing that I would mention is that, you know, marriage is um, an institution with certain norms and values and um, aspirations. And our, our culture is not doing a very good job of kind of communicating the value of marriage and all of the virtues and values that go into forging a strong and stable marriage. In my book, Get Married is designed to give people a sense of what those values and virtues are if they wish to get married and have a happy and stable marriage. One thing that that uh, occurs to me is that people don't have a roadmap to a good marriage. Like they don't they don't even have a map of what that would look like. Like what's a good marriage like? What's the kind they don't they haven't seen it. Maybe they grew up uh, in a in a broken home or a lot of people around them, uh, a lot of people when they were growing up had broken homes or, or divorces. Maybe they have nothing they they don't know what to look for. In another in a person like who is the kind of person who you could entrust your entire life and future and children to and then also expect for, for them to stay around for the duration yeah so i think that's that's exactly on the mark and i talk in the book about the five c's they are communion children commitment cash and community and the idea there is that when it comes to communion you need to kind of keep the romance alive it's not the only thing of mm. course in a marriage but you know, keeping that intimacy alive in your marriage is so important. I talk about the value of regular date nights, for instance, in forging that communion. When it comes to children, recognizing that your marriage matters not just for you or for your spouse, but for your kids and kind of trying to keep your marriage strong in part for the benefit of your children. When it comes to commitment, recognize the importance of fidelity and then also kind of keeping the D word out of your <laughs> out mm -hmm. of your mind and out mm -hmm. of your conversation. I mean, it's not even a possibility. <laughs> So if you're kind of just more committed, 
you know, practically and, and emotionally, that's going to be good for your spouse and for you, both in terms of, you know, less divorce, but also just a stronger marriage. The 4C cash, you know, money still matters, obviously, for marriage. And what's interesting here is there's a real gendered story, Gracie. It's really more about the husband being stably employed. And whether the wife works or not today doesn't matter in terms of marital happiness. But what's very clear is that when the husband is stably employed, couples are more likely to get married in the first place. They're more likely to be happily married, especially when there are kids in the household. And then they're more likely to, to stay married. What we see, for instance, is that when the husband loses his job, divorce goes up by 33% based on a Harvard study. But when the wife loses her job, no effect on the stability of the marriage. It kind of just underlines that even in 2024, there's still a way in which both women and men are looking for the husband to be a reliable breadwinner. And the final C is about community. Birds of a feather flock together, right? And so you are your friends. Again, mm, you are your friends. That's exactly okay? right. Yeah. And if you have friends who in the face of some kind of, you know, normal difficulty, you know, maybe one spouse is depressed, maybe one spouse is, you know, um, just not as romantic as they were, you know, when you were dating, you know, some, there's some kind of issue, you mm -hmm. know, and, and every couple has issues in their marriage, you know, at some point or other or ongoing issues. And if your response in the face of these sort of ordinary marital difficulties is to head towards divorce court, you know, in terms of that's what your friend does, then your odds of doing the same thing rise dramatically. By contrast, if your friends are in the face of ordinary difficulties in marriage, just, you know, managing to work it out, maybe go to a, you know, retreat, counselor, priest, whatever, um, and they're kind of sharing that experience with you, then when you face difficulties in your own marriage, you're going to do the same thing, you know, at a much higher rate. So the point here is that surrounding yourself with other couples and other people who value your marriage and are there for you in tough times is the way to, you know, navigate marriage successfully. And what we see is that typically couples who are regular churchgoers or involved in the synagogue or a temple are more likely to be um, flourishing in their marriages because they have other people in their lives who are with them and for them on this uh, incredible journey of being a spouse and a parent. Is, is this book of yours, is this the kind of thing you could buy and give to somebody who, some young person you know, who you see, I, I have this around me, uh, countless examples around me of young people in their 20s who are dating fabulous people that they love, who love them, that are obviously keepers, as we say, right? This is a keeper, right. but they're yeah. not pulling the trigger. They're not going the next step. Do you think that this is yes. a good book for someone like that to encourage them to give them sort of a map towards the happiness of marriage? Yeah. I mean, I think this book kind of does really articulate kind of the value of marriage as well as kind of giving people a sense of these are five things you can do to maximize your odds of being happily married and stably married. So that's, you know, part of what the book is doing. And then also I'm telling stories about young adults in their mid thirties, young women and young men who are single mm. and who were dating in their twenties, but kind of more focused on either fun or their careers. And now they're unmarried and they're not, and, and they're not dating anyone. And they realize, you know what? I should have spent my twenties being a lot more intentional about finding a spouse. And so it's kind of a, you know, is this more, is this more for, is this more common in, in young women and in women than in men? I feel like women's sell by date is, is earlier. <laughs> they, 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 they run out of options yeah, as they I've get into their thirties. Women and men. I think, you know, there's a kind of, um, a, a prioritization of career. I call it the Midas mindset and, and just kind of like living, living, you know, your best life, you know, mm -hmm. as a single person. Lots of travel. Right? Using your money exactly. for your for and for the things that the are job. fun and exciting. Yeah, not realizing that you know what when you're, um, I'm 53. When you're 53, you know you look back and the things that are most meaningful to you revolve around your your kids and your and your wife or your husband. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you address this in your book, but maybe we could talk about it. The when you see these uh, surveys of young people, very young people, and they're like 18 to 25 or even a little younger, they say um, crazy statistics, like 25% are not heterosexual, don't, don't, don't think of themselves as heterosexual, they're other, uh, and we'll leave the alphabet list. We don't have to talk about all the different variations, but do you think that the fact that we have been feeding our young people on a diet of sort of sexual 
expressiveness is also keeping them from imagining a stable future married? I think just social media in general, Gracie is oftentimes kind of giving people a poisonous message. You know, there. You know, if you look at Instagram or TikTok or or Twitter, depending upon the accounts you follow, you know, you often see people making very negative remarks about the opposite sex or critical comments about marriage or having children. Like there's obviously been all these videos on TikTok, you know, with the dinks celebrating, you know, having no kids. And Wait, tell us what great, a dink is in case our listeners don't uh, know. Dual income, no kids. And there are all these TikTok videos where these dual income, no kids couples are sort of saying, we get to sleep in on Saturday morning. We can go, you know, to a cafe. We can travel at the drop of a hat. You know, life is awesome without children. <laughs> and there's sort of similar, you know, uh, videos. Obviously, Andrew Tate on the right is sort of a figure who is telling young men they should steer clear of marriage. Um, I talk in my book about a lot of elite liberals who kind of ding on marriage from more of a woman's perspective. And one of the things that they're sort of arguing in their own ways is that the sacrifices that come from being married, that come from being a parent, you know, sleep, um, compromise, conflict, um, sharing your money, uh, not being teenagers, 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 selling <laughs> teenagers, um, crying toddlers, you know, it's, it's incredibly, there's no question that the stress of being a parent is a lot higher than the stress of being a single childless adult. Okay. Let's grant that. Mm -hmm. But what they don't tell you, right. Is that when it comes to loneliness, when it comes to meaning and when it comes to happiness, there's no group of Americans who are doing better than married dads and yes, married moms. So there's just, I mean, we've got, you know, a situation where marriage and family life have a lot of bad press and a lot of bad vibes. And yes, they're tough, but it's sort of like what Churchill said, like democracy is the worst thing, you know, <laughs> unless you look at the alternatives. Except like, for all the others. <laughs> and being a parent can be really, really tough, you know, really hard. Do you address, do you address the end of life um, and how where is headed for this loneliness hellscape? Uh, without marriage yeah, and children? Not, not, not at length. I do have a chapter called The Closing of the American Heart, where I'm talking about, you know, marriage rates down, dating is down, you know, childbearing is down. What does that mean? Well, that means there are going to be a lot of kinless Americans heading towards the last chapter of their lives. And if you look across the Pacific Ocean to Japan, mm. we can see this playing out already. And the picture that's painted, even by the New York Times, I referenced this big New York Times article talking about there are all these companies in Japan that are specializing, unfortunately, Gracie, in cleaning out human remains oh. that have been discovered, you know, a week, two weeks, even a month after someone's died, because there isn't anyone, there's no oh. kin. That is to, to that is so kin. tragic, Brad, to think of someone dying alone, so alone that no one even notices. Exactly. So, I mean, this whole idea of like living for the moment, which I think is, you know, the case for too many young adults today, you know, can put you in a bad spot as you head towards your last days. What about the drive in, in Americans for like sort of a radical individualism and independence? And I do it myself. I do it my way. I did it my way, like Frank Sinatra sings. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's you know, the problem in part on steroids is that, you know, this idea that I can live for myself. I can live for my immediate desires on whether it's on online or in terms of travel or in terms of like, you know, my job, whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy. Um, turns out for a lot of people that they're sort of surprised to have an empty home, you know, in midlife and later life and regret that they hadn't focused. You know, I talked to someone, for instance, recently who was a successful State Department attorney and he was, you know, so engrossed in his career that and doing travel, international travel for the State Department, that he wasn't able to, I mean, he didn't really focus on getting married until like, I think his 40s and, and wasn't able to have children at that point. And now he kind of regrets that he didn't get married earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he did not have any kids as as a guy. So Brad, we are out of time. And I, I tell us about your book, where we can get your book. It's already out, I know. I can see it behind you on, on the bookshelf. It's a very handsome book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's called Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families and Save Civilization. Um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, really any HarperCollins is the, is you know, also can sell you the book as well. Well, thank you, Brad Wilcox from the National Mar Marriage Project, which you can visit at nationalmarriageproject.com.
harpercollins.org. And you can also go to harpercollins.com, I think, for your book, Get Married. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. Thanks, Gracie. It's great to be with you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers a short and inspiring homily for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday, when we will encounter a Jesus with whom many of us, especially today, are unfamiliar, a Jesus who speaks to us through a powerful prophetic gesture. The same Jesus whom Isaiah prophesied would not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick, the same Jesus whom the Psalms would call kind and merciful, the same Lord who referred to himself as meek and humble of heart, violently started overturned tables, tossing money on the floor, and making a whip of cords to drive the sheep and cattle out of the temple. There's no contradiction between the image of Jesus as the kind, merciful friend of sinners, and Jesus is consumed with zeal for his Father's house. Because out of love for sinners and the Father, Jesus really hated the sins that can kill us sinners. The word St. John uses to describe how Jesus drove out the animals is the same verb he used when Jesus did exorcisms and drove out demons. That tells us that Jesus was essentially doing an exorcism of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had been built in order to be the dwelling place of God on earth, a place to encounter God in prayer, but it had become something very different over time. It wasn't so much that the fact it wasn't so much the fact that animals were being sold and money exchanged that bothered Jesus. It was two things associated with the selling of animals and exchanging money. The first was that the money changers and animal sellers were ripping off God's people. The temple had become a den of thieves, as Jesus describes. When people came to the temple, they needed to sacrifice an animal to God, the size and value of the animal being determined by their personal means and the type of sacrifice being made. Rather than carry or accompany an animal like an ox or a sheep, or even a cage with pigeons for the many miles uphill walk to the temple, which would have been always a considerable inconvenience and burden. Most would simply buy an animal at the temple. But because there was such a demand, especially at the time of the Passover, the merchants had the market drastically to overcharge people who needed those animals. Others would try to save money by bringing an animal of their own, but they had to get those animals inspected by temple officials who had to verify that the animals they had brought were unblemished as the Mosaic law stipulated. These inspectors were often on the take of the animal sellers to find blemishes that weren't there and disqualify the affected animals. The poor would save their money over the course of the whole year for the trip to the temple, therefore. One way or the other had to pay these enormous prices. While they were there, they also had to pay a temple tax, which needed to be given in only one of two types of acceptable temple currencies. That meant that most everyone had to exchange money, and the money changes could take a large commission, which again penalized the poor most of all. Jesus was outraged that people were coming into the temple to rip off the poor. That was the first thing that incensed the Lord. The second was worse. Even though God had commanded the animal sacrifices as a way of helping them learn how to love him with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength by sacrificing something precious according to their means, as well as... It was a method to express gratitude to God for his blessings. The Jewish mentality had become so distorted over the centuries that they began to look at their relationship with God as something contractual or even magical. As long as I sacrifice this animal to God, some began to think to themselves, everything will be all right, God will be happy. Too many people had started to look at the temple as a place to go and essentially bribe God with animal sacrifices. They had started to look at God as someone who needed to be bought by bloody gifts. God had said many times through the prophets, it's a contrite heart I seek, not animal sacrifices. But they hadn't gotten the picture. So Jesus gave them all a lesson they would never forget. And we would never forget. Jesus wanted to return first the temple and then his people to the true worship of God. He wanted the temple to be a place of prayer, to be his father's house once again. He wanted to help his people recover a real notion of what their relationship with the Father should be based on, a contrite, merciful, and loving heart. When asked why he was doing what he was doing, Jesus pointed to another temple, the temple of his body, 
which he said would be destroyed but rebuilt in three days. Jesus himself had become through the incarnation the true temple, the authentic locus of divine worship, the genuine place where God dwells on earth. But Jesus' plan for that rebuilt temple wasn't merely coextensive with his flesh, but it was meant to include his entire mystical body. His plan was to incorporate us into that temple. When we're baptized, we enter and become part of that temple. We participate as members of Jesus' mystical body and ourselves become dwelling places where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit truly abide. This is what led St. Paul to say in his first letter to the Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? After baptism, our body and soul become a temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a holy dwelling place of God, where God speaks, is praised, and glorified. This is the temple that Jesus wants to make sure is clean, a real house of prayer, a real place where God is worshipped. The Church has us pondered this reading on the third Sunday of Lent, so that each of us can grasp that Jesus wants to give this far more important temple than one built by Herod, the temple of our body and soul, a thorough cleaning. Zeal for us consumes him. He wants to drive out of our bodies and souls anything not fit for God. He wants to cleanse us of our sins. He wants to extirpate any of the seven capital vices, to purify us of all impurities. He does this out of love for God and love for us, and out of hatred and anger toward the sin that kills us and separates us from God. Our temples may not have money changers, but our hearts may value money more than we value God. So we put work above prayer or even above mass on the Lord's Day as we place our security in the material things of this world rather than in God's providence. Our temples may not have sheep, oxen, and lambs, but we may live like animals according to our instincts and lower appetites rather than as mature, loving, self-disciplined sons and daughters of God. Jesus wants to clean us this Lent of everything that doesn't belong in his dwelling place. Through almsgiving, he wants to drive out our materialism and unite us to his spiritual poverty so that we may treasure his kingdom. Through fasting, he wants to drive out, of, uh, drive out our hedonism and unite us to his consecrated chastity so that we may indeed love God and others as he loves his Father in us. Through prayer, he wants to expel our radical individualism and idolatry of autonomy and bind us to his holy obedience so that together we may, with him, consecrate ourselves to the Father's saving will in all things until death. Every Lent, Jesus seeks to reconsecrate the temple he has created us to be by incorporating us anew in the destruction and rebuilding of his own body, the true temple, crucified but raised on the third day. As catechumens and elect prepare for baptism, as the rest of us prepare to renew our baptismal promises at Easter, Jesus wants to help us make our interior a true place of prayer. He wants to fill us with his own zeal out of love for the Father and for others. He wants to stoke in us righteous anger toward the sins that desecrate the temple of his presence, to allow him through a good confession to cleanse and restore our temple back to its baptismal splendor. Those are the results of the consequential conversation he wants to have with us this weekend. God bless you. Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com. And make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers. 